This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks your star trek's books and comic show here on trek fm i am just one of your hosts bruce gibson and i'm very proud to once again introduce you to our other fabulous co-host the one who's the most fabulous on the show that is Dan Gunther. Bruce, I, I don't know about my fabulous levels today. I didn't wear the rhinestone studded denim jacket, but uh, but thank you, though. I, I, I enjoy being very fabulous. You're just fabulous, baby. Fabulous. <laughs> and my co-host has turned into Zsa Zsa Gabor. Okay. <laughs> awesome. How are you doing tonight, Bruce? I'm doing well. I am visiting Pittsburgh. That's where I am right now. And uh, I'm here in downtown Pittsburgh, so for all you people here in the Pittsburgh area who are listening, hello, I'm in town. But by the time you listen to this, I'm no longer in town. So anybody else who's listening, just to let you know, I'm coming to San Francisco soon, and I'll be in New York for five (laughs) days in a couple weeks. So any Star Trek authors out there that are in New York, want to get together, just let me know, because I'll have some time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know you'd be announcing your tour dates that's that's awesome <laughs> yeah baby you gotta tell everybody where you're performing <laughs> i'm taking the show on the road <laughs> oh that's great i love it <laughs> so we do have some news uh and not some news like oh i've got some news i'm having a baby nothing like that i'm talking about star trek books and comics news So first thing on the list is we have the novel, The Face of the Unknown. Remember that novel that came out last fall uh, written by Christopher L. Bennett? Well, he does annotations when he writes his books, but they usually come out months later because it takes some time to go back and, and write and type out all those annotations. Well, he has that out now for The Face of the Unknown. So if you go to his website, you can read all the annotations that he's got there that goes through every chapter of the book, and he lists them by page. And I haven't read these yet. I'm going to, but I haven't yet Uh-oh. read them for uh, the show to even mention anything about him so dan i don't know if you've had a chance to to read any of them yet or not i haven't haven't checked these ones out yet no but yeah christopher l bennett has this history of, of doing annotations because 
you know, some of the references he puts in his novels, like even for really hardcore Star Trek fans, they're very deep cuts into the the Star Trek lore. So, you know, it's something I'm really glad he does. And yeah, I haven't checked these ones out, but I've I've recently read his novel, The Buried Age, and his annotations for that are, are just so comprehensive. So if this is anything like those, I mean, you know, there are some deep, deep references in those in those books that uh, that you'll really be able to find out from these annotations. Yeah, I've read these for his other Star Trek books. Uh, not all of them, but for some of them. Uh, I think these would really be great to use if you ever go back to reread The Face mm-hmm. of the Unknown or any of his other books. Or if you've never read his books, maybe you know read a chapter and then go back to these and read the notes to it. Because it is fascinating. Like For example, I'm looking at The Face of the Unknown right now, and he's referring to one of the characters in that book uh, had appeared in uh, uh, the Department of Temporal Investigations Forgotten History. Mm-hmm. Novel. So he, he'll borrow characters from other novels that other authors have written or that he's written or whatever. And he mentions uh, a call out to Alan Dean Foster's the um, animated series novelization. So there's all these little connections. He's very good at connecting things from mm-hmm. different novels and comics and the TV series and the movies he, he's got a good wealth of knowledge going either in his head or he's got a robot encyclopedia <laughs> sitting next to him telling him everything. Yeah, no, definitely some great stuff. And yeah, just check out his website. He's at Christopher L. Bennett. That's two T's dot WordPress dot com. And you'll be able to find those uh, annotations there. So yeah, really good stuff. Kind of you know, the, the DVD extras or the, the director's commentary of Star Trek novels, basically. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. It's almost like getting special features mm-hmm. to it, like a DVD. Like you said, the director's commentary. That's what this is almost like. So it's, it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you've read any of his old books, too. You can just go back and kind of read through those notes and uh, learn some inside information and what's going on in his head. So we have some comics. You want to talk about some comics, Dan? Oh, you're so fabulous, you know. (laughs) Always want to read Star Trek comics and uh, got a couple of them this week to look at. Yeah, I know. I'm really excited. I like it when we have more than one. We've got Star Trek Boldly Go number eight. That came out the second to the last week of May, just a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember the exact date. And then we also have the Star Trek Waypoint number five, which which came out on May 31st. So that was recent. So let's catch up. We're a couple of weeks behind on Boldly Go. So we have Boldly Go number eight. And this is a storyline that picks up from Boldly Go number seven, where we see that there's a peace conference on Babel. Uh, there's a Babel conference similar to our Facebook group. <laughs> And uh, this involves a peace conference with the Romulans. But things don't always go so well in the Star Trek universe when it comes to peace conferences. Something is always going to happen. And certainly something does here where we see a, uh, I guess a senator, uh, I can't remember exactly, but someone important with the Romulans actually dies Mm -hmm. when he's up on the podium making a speech. And of course... Uh, they think that it's a crew member of the, well, it's not necessarily a crew member of the Enterprise, but it's a cadet 
uh, Andorian cadet that was from the Star Trek Academy comics. They think that he's responsible for the death of this Romulan. So now this story picks up right after that. And uh, so, Dan, what's your first impressions when you were reading this? Well, I, I'm glad that we're picking up this story. I was interested in this story with the last issue. And I also think it's really cool that crossover with the Starfleet Academy characters. I, I'm glad they're not just one off and we never see them again. It's kind of cool that they bring them back for this story. As for the story itself, um, I mean, it's okay. There's some things in it that I think are a little bit weird. It kind of goes off the rails a little bit. But then the ending seems very kind of, oh, okay, so that's what actually happened. But, you know, I, I don't know. It, it feels a little bit paint by numbers in some places. But, you know, it's it's an interesting way to wrap up the story. I wasn't really wowed by it, though, you know, and uh, which is unfortunate. And I guess not every comic issue is going to do that. But, you know, it, it was I, I found this one a little bit middle of the road. Yeah, I would agree with you. It wasn't something I was wild with, but I did like seeing the cadets. And Jayla is fairly prominent in this issue. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who breaks the Andorian, uh, Andorian. She's the one who breaks the Andorian out of jail. Right. Yeah. Which in some ways I'm thinking, well, that's not very Starfleet to do. You know, if the Romulans accuse someone of murder and they lock them up, then, you know, we... You try to convince them or get enough evidence to get that person out of jail. You just don't go and break them out. But, of course, she's Jayla, and she's a cadet, so she doesn't always necessarily know what the right things to do in Starfleet. So I would think that she would later get in trouble for her actions. <laughs> but <laughs> the other cadets kind of help out, too. So it's one of these uh, Starfleet cadets kind of going rogue to help their fellow cadets uh, and try to find... Uh, evidence to show that he's innocent because they definitely believe he is innocent which we found out later that well maybe he is maybe he isn't maybe i shouldn't spoil it hmm. interesting what do you think yeah <laughs> um i do find it interesting that there really is no consequences to him being broken out of uh, con confinement here you know it's the romulans well I, I guess I don't want to spoil the whole story, but, you know, nothing's really done about that on the Starfleet side of things. The Romulans end up finding them and they get taken back into custody. And that's about it. You know, there's no like you said, there there doesn't seem to be any repercussions, at least as as far as Starfleet's concerned for these guys. So it seemed a little odd to me. I kind of expected some kind of uh, retribution or some some sort of consequences there. I, and I do too, but I like to think that that happened on the next page that doesn't exist in the comic. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you can't put everything in. That's right. The one thing I really found fascinating was our Vulcan cadet. She, they make a decision that she should go to the Romulan body that is now dead, but they're still showing some echo of brain activity in him. And so she can mind meld with him to see maybe who the actual killer is that uh, then they could clear their Andorian friend Chev from being accused of murder. So McCoy and the Vulcan cadet, and sorry everyone, I 
can't recall her name. I'm looking. I can't find it. Dan's looking. He can't find her name, but <laughs> she has a name, I'm sure. But anyway, she and McCoy break into where this body is being kept, and they open up his cold corpse, and they say, oh, yeah, he's got slight brain activity, but it's, it's, it's fading fast, and she mind melds with him, which... I don't recall, maybe we've seen something like this in Star Trek before, I don't remember, but I just thought, you know, that was a little interesting story element to this, that she's able to mind meld with someone who's dead. Yeah, it was definitely odd, Um, and I don't think this has ever been done or mentioned in Star Trek before that I remember at any rate, and... I don't know, this seems like it would be a pretty, you know, galaxy-shattering bit of you know news that a vulcan can do this right like you know he's been on ice for a little while now you know it seems really odd to me that a that you know a vulcan can still get this information from a brain that's dead and you know will this ever be brought up again will this ever be used again because it seems like it would be a be a pretty important thing you know you find a body, get get a Vulcan, <laughs> you know, who did this to them? Yes, but the body almost still has to be warm in a sense. It's not mm-hmm. like the body can be dead for a day and then a Vulcan can mind meld. It, they're portraying this as almost like the body's maybe didn't, been dead for an hour or two, maybe mm-hmm. a little longer. I don't know, but but she she can only get so much. So it's not like a full mind meld. But I don't know. It's, it's stretching yeah. it a little bit. But I mean, if if science has proven that dead bodies still can have an ounce of some brain activity going on, maybe it's possible. You know, it's she's seeing a lot of images from early in his life, which I find interesting because from what I understand, people can recall earlier parts of their life easier than more recent parts. Like when people have Hmm. Alzheimer's, they can remember more about themselves being a child than they can of what just happened in the last week. Yeah. So I don't know if there's something in the brain that it almost like when you're losing memory, it's going from present and working its way back to past and the past, the further past you go, the more the, the that's, that's the last thing that gets erased. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of talking you know, off the top of my head, I, I don't know what I'm saying. So anyway, we won't spoil the end of the comic. Uh, so if anybody hasn't read it, check it out. Uh, Kirk's first officer on the Endeavor, who's Romulan, she's featured later on the issue. So if you want to know what's going on with her, this is definitely addressed in there too. So more to come in issue nine. And then we have Star Trek Waypoint number five. And, of course, the Waypoint comics always have two stories. So we have a Deep Space Nine one, and we have an original series one. Yay! So I was <laughs> I will say this. I was a bit surprised at both of these stories because some of the Waypoint comics don't always have a lot of dialogue, but both of these uh, stories both have quite a, the average amount of dialogue that you would f- see in uh, a comic page. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a good amount to read. So the first one, Deep Space Nine... Frontier Doctor. Gee, Deep Space Nine, Frontier Doctor. Who could this be about, Dan? (laughs) Well, as we know, of course, Dr. Bashir was very excited in the pilot episode of Deep Space Nine to, you know, practice frontier medicine and be a hero out on the frontier. And so, yeah, we get kind of this story centering 
a little bit around Dr. Bashir and this kind of odd happening that's happening on the station. I mean, we've got this alien, big, hulking, mouse-looking guy seeming to abduct a woman and encasing her in some sort of material. I'm saying some kind of a lot. This isn't Voyager. This is Deep Space Nine. But... <laughs> So we, we've got this weird mystery and in a lot of ways to me, this felt like more of a straightforward Star Trek story than Waypoint usually does. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like it, it wasn't, it, it felt like it could have been something weird happening in season one of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it definitely does. And it, it obviously does take place during the first season because the opening pages have Bashir and O'Brien and Quarks talking to each other. And even at one point, uh, Bashir puts his hand on O'Brien's shoulder and O'Brien looks at him like, you know, why are you touching me? Like, you know, <laughs> this is back when they weren't so close, you know, and Odo's standing there and Odo's just like, mm, I don't like all these different aliens visiting the station from the other side of the Gamma Quadrant. You know, I don't know how I feel about this. And they point out, well, that's what Starfleet's all about, is discovering new aliens. And they're like, yeah, but we're used to going and looking for them, not them just coming to us. And that's why Odo's a little worried that they come to us, we don't go to them. So mm. it's obviously very early because Bashir's talking about, I find it exciting to be out here on the frontier. <laughs> obviously, the yeah. title's Frontier Doctor. But yeah, <laughs> so then we get this weird, this big alien guy putting this woman in a cocoon. Uh, and of course, they think he's attacking her and she's dying in this thing. And I think once they take her uh, to sickbay, she actually is pronounced dead, I think. They try to cut the cocoon open. And then there's these aliens that are coming through the Gamma Quadrant. And again, try not to give too much away. But it is a, a short Deep Space Nine adventure. You know, as a matter of fact, it's a good entry point if no one's ever seen Deep Space Nine, just to get an idea of what it's about. Mm -hmm. This kind of is a good framing story in a comic, short comic story sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an interesting story. I feel like it, it kind of wraps up a little quickly, uh, almost wrapped up with a, you know, Voyager did wrapping up stories with a captain's log. This is kind of wrapped up by a voiceover by Bashir a little bit as far as the main plot. But, and again, like you say, we're, we won't give it away. It's definitely worth a read. It's it's a very Star Trek story for sure, um, but interesting. You know, I I always I really like Deep Space Nine, and most of what you see with DS Nine is you know people center or people focus on the later seasons and say that's when Deep Space Nine got good and all that stuff. But I I kind of like the focus on early Deep Space Nine. It's a very unique period in the life of the series. Yeah, it's like it's just a very short story because you got to think it's taken up just half of a comic book, so it can't be really long. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a good story. I I mean I I I'd say yeah if you know if you're a Star Trek fan and you like the comics, I would suggest reading this one. Now there's a second story in here, original series story, and it's called Come Away Child, and. I have to admit, okay, first of all, the art is very different from what we've seen in Star mm -hmm. Trek comics, but that's part of the point of Waypoint, is kind of seeing new artistic expression of Star Trek in the comics. It reminds me of some of the books uh, that my kids have gotten over the years, this kind of art style. And it's 
it doesn't look like your typical Star Trek comic. So going into this, I'm like, okay, I don't know what this story is going to be like. But <laughs> I'm going to say up front that this is probably one of my m- more favorite stories in Waypoint of all the Waypoint comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one. And, and I have to admit the art at the beginning threw me off. And I thought, oh, I, I don't think I'm going to like this one. And it's a very atypical Star Trek story. So very much keeping in with what we've come to expect from Waypoint. But, you know, the, the Enterprise crew and the Enterprise herself features, I think, just on the first page. And then that's it. Yeah, that's it. Just the first page. And then we follow the story of this ensign who's who's joining an anthropological outpost studying this alien race. And the story takes some very sharp left turns a few times that really surprised me. And by the end of the story, like I was moved. I, I thought this was a really interesting, really fascinating story. I really enjoyed it. Exactly. That's how I felt. I was moved by the story. It was unique because it wasn't centered around our crew. It wasn't centered around a starship. It was a different branch of Starfleet being on an outpost on a planet where they're observing a a race of beings that are on this planet. So they don't, Mm -hmm. there's the question of, you know, interference and, and just observing and how far is too far. And it's, it's got a lot of the themes that we've seen in Star Trek, but it's from, I guess, like I said, it's from a different angle. It's not from a starship. It's not like we're beaming down. It's like there's outposts on planets where people are are working there for months just observing other cultures, and they can't interact with them. So they're pretty sheltered, these officers. And in this case, you only have two officers. And the woman that's running this, the director, she's not very personable. She only talks about work. And if you're stranded in this little outpost on a remote planet with a person that is your boss for the most part, and all they do is talk about work, you have no one to talk to. You have no social time. You try to engage this person and this person just, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm going to keep talking about work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that's addressed in here too, just the awkwardness of the situation that our officer who beamed down from the enterprise has to deal with for six months. Yeah. And it makes it, it starts the story off on a really interesting foot because you're not sure what to expect. You don't know what's going on. And then it turns into, I think a a really poignant prime directive story and one with very personal consequences and very, it affects the lives very personally of these people, which, you know, we don't see a lot with prime directive stories. We see a lot of, you know, big picture from high up in orbit kind of thing with the enterprise, but this we're right down in the nitty gritty and what it means to the lives of the people being observed and the people who are doing the observing, I think is really, really fascinating. I would say my only complaint about it is uh, about, maybe a third of the way through it uh there's a head of the alien race that they're studying (laughs) in the lab or in the study or whatever they're in and i thought it was a severed head (laughs) and that was like really gory to me then i realized later oh it's more of a a mask (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah I, i thought she was uh 
I, at first, yeah, exactly like you. I thought, wow, she's got the head of one of the one of the inhabitants of this planet in there. And that, I was like, oh, okay, she's making a bust. They're talking about her being artistic and that right. sort of thing. And then, yeah, it turns out to be something very different. But uh, it's not a severed head, which I was very relieved about. Yeah, I was really starting to go. This is going way too far. <laughs> I started to think, is Kathy Griffin doing this comic or what? I don't Ooh. know. Oh, bad, Ooh. bad, bad, bad. Poignant. <laughs> Topical. Which is, which is funny because I read the comic before Kathy Griffin did her thing. <laughs> so Maybe she read this and went, oh, you know, that's a really great idea. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> Anyway, let's move on. We'll stop doing that. I think it's time we go into the feature and we talk about Doctor's Order. I agree. Let's do that. Let me correct that. Doctor's Orders. Oh, there's more than one? There's more than one. So let's flip the page. Okay, so here in our feature, we're going to do an oldie, an oldie but goodie novel. This one came out in 1990. Is that right? I'm looking it up. As fast as I can. Doctor's Orders, original series novel that was 1990. written. Yep, you're yeah. absolutely correct. Diane Duane wrote this, yep, 1990. Uh, first printing was June of 90, which actually that's really good to know because that's about the same time I first started to read Star Trek novels. I probably read my first Star Trek novel. It was the summer of 90, but it wasn't this one. This one I got years later at a used bookstore because I have something stamped in here from our bookstore comics and used books from the Meadowbrook Farmers Market in Leola, Pennsylvania. I have no idea where Leola, Pennsylvania is, but I was there. It must have been near <laughs> Lancaster, Pennsylvania, because I was living there at the time. Oh, I get around. Cool. <laughs> so had you read this novel back then when you picked when you first bought it or is this one you just recently read uh i did read it when i bought it um but not probably when it was published in 90 i'm gonna say i probably picked it up at a used bookstore a year or two after that mm -hmm. and i did read it at that time and i haven't read it since until this past week preparing for the show and i was really looking forward to reading it because the thing i remembered most about it is exactly what it looks like on the cover you have mccoy sitting in the captain's chair and spock standing next to him and doctor's orders tells you exactly what this is mccoy is captain of the enterprise temporarily of course but he's mm -hmm. in command yeah which is a really fun concept and, and something different for sure like you, I, I didn't get this when it first came out. I wasn't really reading Star Trek novels. I think, like you, I started around then as well, but, you know, off and on. But I didn't read this back then. I can tell you that I did read this for the first time. I finished reading it on January 16th, 2012. So fairly recently. Wait, 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 wait. Why do you remember the date so precisely? Are you Vulcan? <laughs> no no unfortunately not or fortunately i'm not sure but i as as those of you who frequently listen to the entire podcast to the very end you know that i have a website where i review star trek novels uh treklet.blogspot.com and uh 
at one point I decided I wanted to read all of Diane Duane's novels because I hadn't read them all and I got into the Rihansu series and, and her books there. So uh, I just looked it up now because I always have on there when I read it. Um, and so I published a review in 2012 and uh, apparently read it in January of that year. So, yeah. So now you get to review it again, but this time not write it, but say it out loud to us. Exactly. So, so. did you reread <laughs> your review after you read the book this time? I did, yeah, just to kind of see what my thoughts were and, and see kind of if those had changed. And, you know, th this review that I wrote was, was very, I didn't go into a lot of depth, unfortunately. So uh, I think talking about it on the podcast is going to be a lot more uh, thorough than I was in this review. I seem to do kind of a quick review. Um, apparently it was written and published on January 16th as well. So I finished reading the novel, wrote the review, and published it that same day. So You're quick. I had a little bit more time to think about it. <laughs> well, yes, we will definitely get in a little more detail than a quick, yeah, you know, this is what I thought of it, and that's the end of the feature. I mean, we don't want a five-minute feature, do we? No, no we don't I want don't that. think so. That's not going to work. <laughs> so let's delve into this book. So as I mentioned, you know, McCoy eventually gets command of the enterprise and one of the reasons for this is that he makes little comments to kirk occasionally about how he has a cushy job you know he's got oh this nice comfortable chair he can sit in because mccoy at this point he's got a lot of people getting sick on the enterprise there's colds there's broken legs or whatever i mean there's just for some reason sick bay is busy and he's not sleeping much and he's just very busy working 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 so when he comes up to the bridge and there's Kirk lounging back in the captain's chair, not really doing much of anything and tells, you know, the crew members, do this, do that. McCoy's like, yeah, yeah, you got the less stressful, cushy job and just makes little snark comments about it. So at one mm -hmm. point, Kirk decides he has to beam down to this planet that they're visiting. And we'll get more into that in a moment. And uh, so he says, you know what, Bones, have a seat. You're stressed. I need you to chill out. You have a report that you owe me that you still haven't written. I want you to sit down in this captain's chair. I want you to write the report. I'm being me down the planet. You have the con. Bye-bye. And <laughs> Bones is like, what? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, okay. Well, I guess I'll work on my report. Well, Kirk doesn't come back right away, does he? <laughs> no, this is, this is, of course, when the proverbial stuff hits the fan and Kirk disappears and leaving McCoy stranded in command of the Enterprise. Because apparently, and this is one part, sometimes stories have a, a, a plot thing in them or, or a knit that you can pick that, you know, if, if they were to correct it or if it wasn't part of the story, the entire story would, would disappear. And for this story... And spoiler alert, as much as I love this story, and I really do love this book, the idea that McCoy can't be relieved of, of command of the Enterprise because, you know, Kirk is the one who put him in command, so Kirk has to be the one that relieves him. McCoy can't turn over command to anyone else. It's a little bit silly. It's a little bit like, you know, we're maneuvering the character into this position and not giving him an, an out when there should be a lot of different ways that, you know, he could get out for the best interests of the enterprise. There's a situation Spock would be the best commander. Therefore, 
it should be easy to be able to make that decision. But, you know, whatever. We need the story and we need McCoy to be stuck there. So I'm okay well, with that. McCoy feels the same <laughs> way. And so do I. Because you know, when Spock actually comes up to the bridge, McCoy's like, great, Spock, the bridge is yours. And Spock's like, no, doctor, I'm sorry. You were left in command. And McCoy's like, yeah, but you're a higher ranking officer. And, I, and okay, and if I'm in command, then I'm giving you command of the ship. That's part of my command. And Spock's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Once an officer is placed in a command position by a captain, they can't be relieved of command until that commanding officer relieves you on official record from command of the Enterprise. So Spock <laughs> has to serve as first officer to McCoy. So I did think that was a stretch because I think, you know, for the most part, when we watch Star Trek, you might see Kirk say, Sulu, you have the con, leave the bridge, and then Spock comes on the bridge later and Sulu jumps out of the chair and Spock, come, you know, like even yeah. like oh, yeah. Next Generation and, you know, Riker might show up to the bridge and Data's like, oh, sir, here you go. You know, I was left with the con, but Riker, you're, you're here, so I defer to you. Which makes sense. You know, I mean, like what if Kirk had been missing for months? Like right. what if he'd been captured by... The Klingons and spirited away and they have to go rescue him or something like that. Is, is McCoy required to be in command of the Enterprise for months and months and months until, oh my God, Jim, you're back. Relieve me for the love of God. Like, or yeah, what it, if it just strains credibility? <laughs> or what if Picard said, Wesley, you have the con. And yeah, they're like, oh, this would be good training for Wesley. Oh, the young lad could use it. Oh, wait. Oh. I'm dead. And Riker's like, oh, great. Now I have to serve under Wesley until we get a new captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> and Wesley's like, that's exactly. okay. I save the ship all the time anyway. So you should be glad I'm captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, I, I did but feel yeah. that was a stretch. Mm -hmm. All that aside, I mean, like I said, it's one of those things that's necessary for the story. I am able to forgive it because, you know, we get a really good story out of it. So. We do. And so we have to see McCoy struggle with making command decisions. He's got to also find Kirk. He's dealing with Klingons. He's dealing with an attack from Orion pirates. And he has to deal with a pesky Starfleet admiral. What more can you ask for when you have command of a ship? <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's pretty much the, the Starfleet marathon of command right there. <laughs> it is. He definitely got the training that he needs to be a good captain. So. What did you think of McCoy as a temporary captain of a starship? I do have to say I was uh, pleasantly surprised. It, it was cool that, you know, he he had his own style and it wasn't um, it wasn't forced is the thing. Like everything that McCoy did and how he acted was very much in keeping with his character, which I thought was really interesting. You know, they could just have him you know, be a good captain and be awesome and that kind of thing. But, but Diane Duane really stuck to his character and did a really good job of portraying what it would be like if McCoy were in command of the enterprise and he does his homework. You know, he, he really does try and be a good commanding officer for the enterprise. You know, I have to say as much as I also love this book, that kind of bothers me. I wanted more, <laughs> difficulty for McCoy. I wanted him to have more difficulty than he did. He seemed mm -hmm. to be a little too good at it, in my opinion. Um, 
I, I definitely could see him being a captain of a starship because a lot of the decisions he was making were pretty much the right ones. I guess what I'm saying is if I would think that I'm going into a book about McCoy getting the bridge being captain temporarily of a starship that it would also be a little more comedic than this one was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was thinking, what if Peter David, for example, wrote this book? I think it would have been pretty funny to see uh, jabs going between McCoy and Spock and Spock having to serve as McCoy's first officer and, and Spock saying, no, doctor, I think you need to make the decision this way. Damn it, Spock, I'm in charge. I'm making the call on this. Like, I wanted more of that going on but it just mm-hmm. felt like mccoy was doing the right thing and spock was like yes doctor that well not i don't even think he would call him doctor i don't remember but he was just like yeah that that sounds good or well you know and here's what i would add to that and i just thought it was he did too well is all i'm saying which is probably the right decision to make when writing a book like this about mccoy because you if you this is a serious situation it's not necessarily supposed to be comedic when someone has command of the bridge of a starship. So it leads credibility to McCoy that he's not just a good doctor, but he's a very good Starfleet officer. Mm-hmm. He's well-rounded, well-trained, and he's learned from the best. He watches Kirk, he watches Spock, and he's learned from them. So it's probably the right direction to go with the book for his character. So I applaud the author for that. It's just I think it would have been a little more fun if he had more difficulty and he was really struggling and he was jabbering back and forth with Spock about certain things. I think I, I just wanted a little more of that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. You don't want to do too much damage to the character of McCoy, of course. You know, you don't want him to, to royally mess up. But I did like that he got kind of a taste of what the other side of that is like and a little bit more appreciation for what Kirk does and that sort of thing. But yeah, he, he was probably a little more competent than maybe he should have been. (laughs) But again, I think that just proves the strength of Starfleet officers and what they've been trained to do. I mean, for example, if you look at Star Trek 09, we see McCoy doing the Kobayashi Maru scenario with Kirk and Uhura. So I mean, he's not like he's just trained to be a doctor. So that's true. I think it's and the he right is move. A, yeah. And he is a lieutenant commander in Starfleet. So he, he would have had to take some tests at some point and that sort of thing. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's good. I think it's good. Here's the part where it really gets weird, in my opinion, is this planet they go to. There's three native species on there, very different from one another which is very rare, and the preservers didn't put them there, but these, they're native to this planet. And that's not the weird part to me. I like that. I like the idea of different species on the planet, but they're really different. Like, I had a hard time even visualizing what these things actually look like. So we, the first one we're introduced to is the Orne, uh, also sometimes called the Orneate. and i put some notes here that they take the shape that they choose so at first it's like oh so there's shape shifters but they quickly point out no they're not really shape shifters 
and they perceive things as being fluid. And there's no organizational structure. There's no rules on the planet. No one rules the planet. They're just kind of there. They're, and they build houses out of themselves, little mm-hmm. buildings. That's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they, I, they use a lot of verbs, which creates some problems with the universal translator, which I thought was pretty cool because I don't like it when the universal translator so easily picks up a language. You know, it's mm-hmm. nice that it, it has to keep struggling, figuring through it. And they don't believe that they cause anything to happen to them. And they even have don't really believe that Starfleet officers are people. <laughs> Does that yeah. make any sense? <laughs> well, I really help, I really help like... me here, Dan. Help me with this one. <laughs> well, I really liked that because, you know, Diane Duane has, you know, an incredible imagination. And I love Star Trek. I love a lot of things about Star Trek, but sometimes their aliens are just not alien enough, you know, the bumpy forehead of the week and you know, that guy's got, you know, kind of a weird nose and those people over there have weird ears, but you know, they're kind of humanish, I guess. But this one, like, you know, and like you said, this is just one of the three species we're going to talk about. You know, they're definitely weird. And I love that they're not, they don't just look weird and they're, they're not just physiologically weird, but their, their worldview and how they see things and how they interact with the world and their ideas are odd, you know, and, and not the way we see the world and the way we uh, perceive things, which I thought was interesting and not, and something that's not really done enough, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I, I love these guys, <laughs> you know, they build a big building and then, you know, when somebody walks up to talk to them, the, the one at the top <laughs> rolls his way down and rolls up to him and says, Hey, what's up? You know, like, they're weird. I love them. <laughs> Yeah, I I do like the fact that we're seeing weird, different aliens instead of just humanoids all the time. But how would you describe what these look like from what you read in the book? Yeah, I think like kind of the way I pictured them was like clear bags of, of, I think they said protoplasm. So like, I don't know, some like clear plastic bags of goop, (laughs) I guess. I don't know. It's kind of yeah. how I pictured them. Maybe like multicolored strands of goopiness in them. I, I don't know. Yeah. No, just, I, I, that's like, that's why I do. T- like I was picturing almost like sandwich bags with kind of a goop stuff in it or something. Yeah. And then little eyes that pop out. <laughs> yeah. That was interesting. They create little eye stalks. And part of the, the, the reason they're so fluid in their thinking is for example, if they need to, you know, look at something, they create these eye stalks and create eyes. And then when they're not using them, they just, you know, turn back into kind of undifferentiated stuff and retract back into them. Um, so they're kind of like shapeshifters, I guess. They, they, they can change things about them in that way. But, you know, they're not quite like a shapeshifter like Odo who can, you know, become different things they just kind of change aspects of themselves uh but they're still normally just themselves little i guess the those crystal creatures in the next generation episode would would call them really ugly bags of mostly water (laughs) (laughs) i just don't want to find one in my lunch yeah (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so okay then we have the second species the lay it Lahit, 
Lay it? I'm going to say lay it. Do you think that's how it's pronounced? Possibly. I always pronounce them, and I just realized this now in my head, is Lahit, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's right. But it's L-A-H-I-T is how they're spelled. And spelling's going to be important when we, when we get to the third species, for sure. Yes, but. it will, definitely. <laughs> so now these, I have a little easier time visualizing them. They're less alien-looking because they look like something that we have here on our lovely planet called Earth. These entities look like trees. Mm -hmm. So these are trees that are moving around the planet very slowly, and they move around as colonies. And they have smooth trunks, but these trunks aren't brown. They're more of a greenish color. And then they have their leaves, which are more bluish, feather-like. And they... They, they're, they're still like within the ground. It's like the roots move within the ground as they're walking through it. So mm. it kind of reminds me of like Lord of the Rings in a sense, because they had trees walking around in that too. And HR puff and stuff. If, if, <laughs> if anybody knows that, <laughs> I didn't really picture that, but it just occurred to me that there's trees and is it trees in that? Oh yeah. And the old McDonald's commercials they used to have trees i think that had faces and moved arms and stuff i mean i'm talking about hmm. in the 70s long before you were born or whatever <laughs> fair enough uh yeah i i i didn't even think of that and i love lord of the rings and i i didn't think of the ent at all but yeah oh that was the first thing i thought of oh that's great yeah sort of like that but they, they kind of I, I guess i was really picturing like evergreen trees but I know they, yeah, they do say the trunks are green and smooth and kind of bluish feather-like leaves. But yeah, in my head, I was kind of picturing like pine trees or, or you know, tall conifers, that that kind of thing. But yeah, slowly moving, like using the roots to kind of walk and tear up the ground as they move a little bit. Uh, very interesting species, but yeah, definitely, like you say, a little more relatable, a little bit easier for us to kind of wrap our heads around. And they didn't play as big of a role in this book as the other two species. Uh, mm -hmm. The first one we talked about, and especially this third one, plays a big role. I felt like the Lahits, 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 whatever they were calling them, the trees, just uh, there wasn't a whole lot uh, to them in this story. So then we get to the third one. Wow. Okay. I am um, really excited to hear how you're going to pronounce this. <laughs> So I'll first mention how it's spelled. It's spelled with a semicolon, a capital A, and a lowercase t. So it's like, what? is that good? <laughs> how about that? <laughs> That's not bad. I think, I think Uhura would say, oh, it's actually a little bit more of a glottal stop. <laughs> I kind of loved that throughout the book. Like the first two or three times we see the name, we don't get any kind of direction on how to pronounce it. It's just, you know, a character says, oh, we're, you know, the third species is the, and then that species. And then another character says, oh, is that how you pronounce that? I would have thought that'd be different. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't say how they were pronouncing it until later, you know, they mentioned there's like a maybe a click or a glottal stop or a <laughs> or something before the <laughs> at whatever. So 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 I, I'm sorry. Show me how to pronounce it then. 
I have no idea. Um, <laughs> Come on. I want to hear your version. From the descriptions, I was thinking something like, kind of like you did, like, at. <laughs> but as I was reading it, I just pronounced it at in my head as I was I reading I just wish everybody could have seen the visual that I just saw. At. <laughs> <laughs> you, just act, you just choke on it a little bit at the start and then say the rest of it, I guess. I don't know. It, it reminds me of the movie... Uh, what was that called? The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's hmm. an old movie from like the seventies or early eighties or something. And there's a tribe in that, you know, they do that little click sometimes when they talk. So I was just picturing like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so these appear as rocks. So we have glad sandwich bags. We have <laughs> Lord of the Ring trees. And now we have rocks, but these aren't the rocks that Charlie Brown got for Halloween. These are like big, like boulders. And okay, I know, I know this sounds really weird. If you haven't read this book and you're listening to me talk, I, I swear to you, I'm not doing drugs. There, <laughs> <laughs> there's like, it's a rock that people see, but then they perceive that it is this species that's at that's talking to them. But they don't see a mouth or anything moving, but they can hear them, I guess, in their head. And they don't see the rock move. But if they look away or whatever, all of a sudden the rock's in a new location, but they didn't see it move, but they perceived it moved. Is, mm -hmm. am, I, am I doing good? Am I doing justice to this? That's not bad. And I, I would say even if you didn't turn away, it would still appear that it moved, even though it, it doesn't look like it moved it's still you perceive that it did somehow it's it's a weird concept that i think doesn't work outside of the written word but you know the written word it, it kind of it, it makes you imagine this kind of weird headspace you're in when you're around them so it i, I don't i don't know I, I i really liked that i i don't see how you could show it in a movie or television show which i think was kind of the point you know it's something that can only really be described and even then doesn't really make a lot of sense to your brain. But I'm sure if you were actually in a place with an at, <laughs> it would, it would make sense to you. You'd be like, Oh, okay. That's what that means. <laughs> Which is kind of cool. I almost had the feeling it's like where you're, you're sitting there somewhere and, and you just, you get this perception that somebody's, maybe behind you and you turn and you look and they're not, but you almost sense that maybe somebody was there. It's almost like that. It's, it's like the rock is there. And then next thing you know, it, like you said, you don't even have to turn away. And then all of a sudden it's in a different location and it just kind of happens and you just know, you don't see it happen. You just perceive it. Oh, it's so strange. It's it's. Weird. I mean, that's what's so great about the novels, like you're saying, versus a TV show. These are things you can't do. It's almost like it just gives you the feeling of what they feel or what they sense is going on with the rocks that you can't portray in a visual medium. It's like you have mm -hmm. to almost describe the feeling that these crew members get when they're around these beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it gives them a very otherworldly, well, I guess literally, but like a very not of this reality feel to them, you know, which is 
I don't know, really, really cool. Like, I don't know, like reading, like coming back to Lord of the Rings, sort of, it's like some of the uh, ideas or the people that populate that world, like something almost beyond nature, like a Tom Bombadil or, or something like that, you know, like just outside of nature a little bit that feels almost supernatural. I guess literally outside of nature, that just means the same thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really is different. And they, these beings are there. They, it see, they seem to be there, but they fade in and out. Uh, so we find out later that they, they, I don't want to say, I guess in the way they manipulate time, I don't know. Maybe they don't really manipulate, but they can, it's all, they remind me of the, you know, the celestial temple, the wormhole aliens, and the fact that, you know, they're not living in the present, past, or future. But mm. it, they almost indicate here that these beings live in the present, but they sense or can see the future, but they can't do anything to change the future. They can't act upon the future, but they mm -hmm. know the future. Yeah, I, I definitely got that same feeling as, you know, like when Captain, I guess at the time, Commander Sisko was explaining linear time to the prophets. You know, Kirk kind of has this same moment with these, with the master of the at, I guess. I'm not going to try and say that <laughs> anymore. You know, they, they end up calling him the master. Um, and there's kind of that same dynamic where Kirk's explaining their perception of time. They exist only in the present. And I, I imagined the prophets talking to Cisco. It is inconceivable that a species could live like this. You know, it was just like, Oh wow. You only live in the present. That's really weird. We, we live the past, the present and the future. Like that's, that's just all we live all through all of them. And I, I almost felt like this did almost a better job of kind of explaining what that would be like than uh, Emissary did for Deep Space Nine and, and the Prophets, which again, I love the Prophets and Emissary and all that, but this book, I kind of wrapped my head around it a little easier as far as, you know, it was just like, oh, you exist only in the present. Well, I, we don't want to get narrowed down like, like to that, like you are. That's interesting. You know, it was, it was really interesting point of view. Well, and we mentioned earlier that Kirk is missing. And the reason he's missing is because he's talking to one of these cats. And cats? And I, <laughs> <laughs> it's so confusing. But I I I knew right away, and it's not because I read this book years ago because I didn't remember any of this, but I knew right away when they said the captain's missing and we can't find him, but we we don't show anything that he left the planet. And the um, Ornays are saying that he's still here. And I thought, well, yeah, he's probably there, but he's in, he's there. But this alien has they, they fade in and out. So he must be there, but in a different dimension, different time or something like that. He's he's being cloaked, but he is there. And that's what we do find out that not only is he there, but he is progressing through a different piece of time with this alien in more into the future almost like a week into future events so as mccoy is in charge of the ship and klingons show up they can't find kirk 
he's there, but he's basically moved through time quickly. Like time has sped up and it's taken him a, a week ahead of them, which then once he realizes what's going on and he needs to go back, the at sends him back to the present time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? I keep saying, that's does a, that make sense a lot? Because a lot of it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much it. And and I do love how the book plays with your perception of time. Like, for example, when Kirk's talking with the master, he thinks like, oh, it's been a few hours. Yeah, he calls this alien the master. Yeah. And and the master tells him, no, you, you've been talking to me for, you know, a couple days, basically. And Kirk's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Hmm, it didn't feel like it. You know, it's and it's just, it's kind of neat that they, I don't know, like reading this book, I got, I got really into it. And moments like that, you know, you, I really put myself in Kirk's place and it, and it felt weird and like, oh, okay, that's, we, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but I really got into that and like put myself in his place and imagined what that would feel like. And the book does a really good job of kind of conveying that feeling as you go along. Yeah. And I kept thinking that as we were seeing the storyline with McCoy and Spock and the rest of the crew, you could tell that a day or two has gone by. And I kept thinking, okay, well, if all this time is going by and Kirk's missing, and when we go back to scenes with Kirk and the master, it's not like Kirk has been talking to this master for 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, is this something where we're losing credibility here in the book? But then we find out later, oh no, he's not been talking to him 48 hours. It's been, you know, it may only feel like two hours to him, but it's been two days. Mm -hmm. And even a couple of times during that whole conversation, he pulls out his compute, his communicator and, says Kirk to Enterprise how is everything and who's like oh it's fine captain he's like that's, oh, okay cool that really threw me <laughs> off because yeah, it's like I was Kirk's like, missing but then weird. he's talking to her on the communicator but mm-hmm. it was in and the I future. totally forgot about the time shift thing too so I was like yeah. what is going on right so yeah i mean it, i think that's that's great what you're saying because you're you're saying what's going on and that's what mm-hmm. really wants you to keep reading the book so doctor's orders isn't just about oh how mccoy handles things when he's in command of the starship there's all this other stuff going on in the planet with these odd aliens that are very alien to us and and something's going on with time and and where's kirk and how's this playing with what's going on on the enterprise and the time and i mean it's very much a star trek weird science fiction element going on while it feels grounded when we're on the enterprise dealing with mccoy in command it gets very alien-like when we're down the planet in those scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I appreciate most about this story is, you know, you you have an idea like, oh, what would it be like if Kirk were missing and McCoy were stuck in command? But the book, like you say, it doesn't rest solely on that idea. It, you know, Diane Duane takes the opportunity to weave in some other really big ideas and really make a full really fascinating star trek story about it so it's not just about the one thing you know there's a lot going on here and i feel like that initial idea is interesting enough that you could just do a run-of-the-mill star trek story kirk's missing mccoy is in command and they have to find him and get him back 
But the fact that so much more is put into this book is just, it, it shows what a great writer Diane Duane is, you know. Um, she doesn't just do a run-of-the-mill Star Trek novel that I feel like, you know, other authors might have done with this. She really goes hellbent for leather and, and does a really great, really cool science fiction story. Okay, so let's move on to some other things. One of the questions I had is when this story actually takes place, and not meaning while Kirk is missing, but when the whole novel actually takes place in the Star Trek timeline. Now, the cover shows McCoy and Spock in the TV series Blue Uniforms, and this is reminiscent from the last episode we did on Larry Treks, where we're discussing about when that book took place. But in this one, I was wondering the same thing. You know, does the cover represent the time frame that this novel takes place? I was thinking going into this, the first time I read the novel, I thought the cover was wrong and that this took place after the motion picture. But reading the novel now, I don't think that's true because we do see that Chapel is off getting her doctorate where we see in mm -hmm. the motion picture, she's already a doctor. So here she's right. pursuing her doctorate. So she's left the ship to do that. And so obviously this would take place late, maybe into the five-year mission. But when the book starts off, they are on Earth. They're on shore leave. And they're just waiting for the next assignment. So here's this mission. And their mission is to go to this planet that there was already basically another survey crew or whatever that established first contact. And now the enterprise is there to see if these learn more about the species and the language and stuff, and maybe make them members of the Federation. But there's mention by McCoy. Well, after this mission, we'll go back to earth and then see if there's another mission for us. And that doesn't sound like a five-year mission scenario of them being on earth, going on a mission, mission accomplished, going back. So there were times back in the when this novel was written in the 90s, a lot of things in the timeline weren't as defined as they are now. And I know that some fans and some writers assumed, well, there could have been two five-year missions before the motion picture. Or some people I remember saying at the time, well, after the five-year mission, the Enterprise could have been sent on other missions before Kirk got promoted to Admiral. And that's what I'm wondering if what is going on with this novel in that Diane Duane decided, well, the five-year mission is over, they're on Earth, but they're still going on missions before Kirk's promoted to Admiral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely very nebulous. Um, and, and of course, different novels will contradict things in different ways. Like if you read The Lost Years in that novel, the Enterprise is returning from the five-year mission and Kirk's promoted right then and there kind of thing. Um, but yeah, this definitely felt like it was, it, it's definitely either very late five-year mission or, you know, because of, like you said, the kind of missions the Enterprise is going on and where the crew is at, it feels like it would be kind of in between the five-year mission and the motion picture. And I mean, you know, you could write entire papers on, you know, where the Enterprise was and what she was doing and whether there's a five-year mission or not and pull out all these little tiny details. Like, I, I don't think there were two five-year missions before the motion picture because, and my, my evidence for that would be Kirk saying why he's retaking command of the Enterprise in, in the motion picture. You know, Decker says, why, why are you doing this? And he, Kirk says, 
five years out there exploring strange new worlds, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, okay, so he's only captain for five years, it sounds like, of the Enterprise before that. And, you know, like all these little things, like I say, you could you could you could pull out all these pieces of evidence and, and write an entire treatise on <laughs> what's going on here. But yeah, definitely very shortly before the motion picture, somewhere in there, right before Kirk is no longer captain of the Enterprise. That's kind of where I'd put it. Yeah. One of the things I like about Star Trek Into Darkness is they are on a mission. They're visiting a planet. You know, we deal with the whole prime directive in that opening scene but they weren't on a five-year mission it was revealed later once they go back to earth that hey they may be assigned on a five-year mission what i like about that is i never liked the idea of the original series of kirk x command of the enterprise does a five-year mission and gets promoted to admiral i always thought well they may have done other missions before the five-year mission and even after the five-year mission they could have done some other smaller missions before he became Admiral. And I guess that's what mm-hmm. I was looking at in this novel. It's like, oh, well, this could be one of those situations where it all their adventures didn't have to take place within a deep space five-year mission. There could have been missions right. before and after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it seems like the authors take a lot of liberties with that. And it makes sense, you know, that it wouldn't just be this... Uh, this very set period of time with nothing else kind of going on in, in between. So yeah, no, it makes sense that, that there would be other missions and stuff like that. So one thing that seems really common in Diane Duane novels and something that I really enjoy reading with her books is the kind of, the level of detail and the level of realism that she brings when she's talking about starships maneuvering and fighting in space. So, you know, in the Ruhansu novels, there's, I can't remember which one, but there's a lot of maneuvers done around stars and, and, and that sort of thing. And in this novel, I really enjoyed the kind of final battle that's going on. So, you know, the Klingons have shown up and they're challenging McCoy And then the Orions show up and there's kind of this big battle in space and McCoy somehow amazingly gets the Klingons kind of fighting on his side. And there's all these really intricate maneuvers to do with like orbits around the system and leaving the system and coming back in on a parabolic orbit. And to me, it one of my favorite movies of all time is Apollo 13 and Ever since I saw that movie, I started reading a lot about NASA missions and, you know, how they get on course to go to the moon and that kind of thing. Because, you know, in space, there's no friction. So you don't use a powered engine the entire time. You use an engine to do a burn that gets you on a particular trajectory in a particular course. And then you just keep on that course until you have to make adjustments. And it's just the the total space geek in me was really enjoying, you know, the Enterprise being on this big, long parabolic uh, course and they have to execute an impulse burn at a particular point to get back on course back into the system. And I just, that stuff really makes this come alive to me and really makes this feel like a real world. And, you know, the, the idea of these starships using these intricate maneuvers and Sulu being a real helmsman and doing all these maneuvers as opposed to hitting a few buttons and setting course to Altair, Warp 4, Engage, and that's it kind of thing. I, I really love that aspect in this book. 
There is a lot of detail in that. She does do that in her books quite a bit. Sometimes for me, it gets a little too deep into it, a little too much detail that sometimes I don't even really understand what the, the, the terms that she's using, exactly what that means. But I do like the fact that this is, these are stories about ships. And what better way to write books about ships than to know how to maneuver ships and the language used to navigate and and uh, command ships and and do these different maneuvers and such like you're saying so my so many times in star trek we get the okay standard orbit fire torpedoes okay warp five get out of here <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and this is very much of okay let's use what our capabilities are what we're good at to pilot a ship to our advantage, to, to win a combat, to win at, at fighting the enemy without necessarily shooting torpedoes, but how can we outmaneuver them with the abilities that we've learned on how to navigate these ships? So it is, mm. it is interesting that they use the slingshot effect, but not to, you know, change time. That's actually discussed that they have to be careful about that. But, uh, and then they employ the uh, other Klingon ship to do it with them as they're trying to deceive the Orions. So that was pretty cool too, I thought. Mm -hmm. To me, it's almost like a lot of other writers and kind of how we see it on television. They almost treat starship maneuvers like ship maneuvers on an ocean or something like that. And when I read Diane Duane talking about starship maneuvers, it, it sounds like she's talking about spaceships, which is, you know, it's really cool. Like, I, I do love the naval aspect of Star Trek. And Diane Carey is someone who's really good with with naval terms. And uh, Nick Meyer in Star Trek Two really brought that in, that idea of like Navy, naval ships on an ocean kind of thing and translating that to Star Trek. And he's working on but Discovery, so we may see more of that in that. Yeah, which which I'm totally cool with. Like, that's great, too. Uh, I always said Master and Commander, The Far Side of the Ocean is one of my favorite Star Trek films yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it really felt like, you know, combat and movement in Star Trek feels very naval. But when Diane Duane does it, it, it feels like spaceships, which is, you know, it, it feels very NASA to me, you know, and, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I like it, too. I, it's it's again, it's an advantage of this book. It's not just about McCoy. It's about starships (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She brings a lot to it for sure. So one of the, the final things I kind of wanted to talk about was kind of what, what I took away from this book as the theme, you know, the main, the main idea behind the story, at least as far as, you know, the main plot of McCoy having to take command and, and that sort of thing. I think a lot of times, and you know, different stories can have different themes that you can take away from, for this one, I feel like a lot of times people think that the grass is greener on the other side and, you know, we want to, we want to do something other than, than what we're really good at. And, and, you know, we, we think that we can do things better or, you know, other people are not doing things as well as we would, but. I think the the idea in this book is that sometimes we're 
needed where we are and where our expertise lies and that that might be where we're most comfortable and where we can do the most good. And to me, there's this quote right at the end of the book and the master of the at, I'm again, not going to try and say it that way, um, says, and he's kind of looking at McCoy while he says this, he says, who doesn't think occasionally of leaving his post and doing something else, some other job better, but sooner or later, if duty matters, it keeps you where your given word put you. No, doctor, this is my charge. Here I stay. And I feel like, you know, that's a message that McCoy kind of takes. Like, you know, I might want to wander up to the bridge and tell Kirk how to do his job. But, you know, he's a doctor and sick bay is where he feels the most comfortable and can do the most good. And I, I kind of like that. I think it's a you know, it's, it's a good message. Um, not necessarily the message that, you know, you're going to follow all of your life. Sometimes you do have to get out of a rut and stretch yourself a bit, but sometimes, you know, you should kind of pay attention to where you're most needed and where you think you can make the most difference. Yeah. The grass isn't always greener on the other side. I have so many examples I can bring up for me and other people that have dealt with that. I think it's really just about finding your place where you belong. And mm. I think that's one of the things McCoy does learn that even regardless if he feels that Kirk's job is cushy or not, even if he learns from this experience that there is a lot of stress involved and it's not cushy, I think what he also realizes is that's not where he belongs. He may be, he may mm -hmm. have done a good job at it, but where are his skills best used? Where does he feel most, most comfortable? What is home? And it really is working there in sick bay and, and being a medical country doctor. And it's not being on the bridge and doing other things. And I think that that says a lot as we go through the different movies McCoy may leave Starfleet or take leave, but he always seems to come back. And so he always is back where he belongs and he belongs in sick bay and he belongs with his friends who are his family. And so he keeps naturally coming back to that. And so even though the grass seems greener on the other side of retirement and I've left Starfleet, you know, he's happier being grumpy in that sick bay. And so when the grass <laughs> may be greener on the other side, doesn't mean you're going to be happier you may be happy in your current position because that's where you belong. And even though you complain and, and, and just gripe about it, maybe, maybe you kind of like that. You know, I know people I've worked with that just complain and complain, complain, but really I feel like that's what they like to do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to say this was a hard theme for me to articulate right now because I'm kind of at a point where I'm a little frustrated in my current job and I want to make a change. So, you know, I'm saying all this stuff, but I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I kind of want to make a change. So uh, it's kind of hard to say right now, but. Well, yeah, I mean, if you no. make a change, I mean, it's, it's important to go ahead and make that change, but again, it doesn't mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can make a change and go somewhere and things are definitely better. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the grass is always going to stay green. Mm -hmm. And from my experience, 
I have left jobs and companies where I've gone somewhere and I'm much happier, but over time things change in that new company and that new position and, and people, new people come in and other people leave. And now I find myself back in the same situation I was in at another company. So then I realized, well, Mm -hmm. the grass wasn't necessarily greener. It's just, I have to move when the time is right. Yeah. And in your time is now (laughs) you need to move. (laughs) And you're talking to someone who, you know, his average of staying at a particular job is between three and four years. So uh, if any potential employers are listening, that's not true. That's not true at all. I'm making that up. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Dan would make a great employee. (laughs) I would like to think so. (laughs) Hey, yeah. You know, wouldn't it be cool if we got jobs from just doing this podcast the people go hey uh-huh. i'll hire you <laughs> oh living living the dream wouldn't that be great <laughs> well now you think the grass is green on the other side but maybe not <laughs> never know you never know so <laughs> i'll just stay here in sick bay and complain <laughs> there you go what so do you want to complain about this book or do you want to make some nice glowing uh, remarks about it because we're in our final thoughts section. So what do you think, Dan? Well, I, I like I said, I do have one complaint about the book, but I already made it earlier. And other than that, I have very, very few complaints. Diane Duane, you know, there's a reason that at one point I decided to just read all of her novels and review them all. She is an incredibly fantastic writer and the the Star Trek novel line is all the better for having had her voice in it for quite a few novels. I love Doctor's Orders. It might not be as, you know, in kind of the same scope as some of her other, you know, epic empire changing stories with the Rohansu and all that sort of stuff, but it's a really excellent book. There's so much imagination that goes into it. And she gets the characters pitch perfect. Like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, their voices are just, you know, I I say this a lot about a lot of novels, but she just really hits the characters' voices perfectly. So I, I don't think that I can give this book any less than, I'd say, five out of five plants that the Klingons use for their equivalent of anchovies on their meals, whose name I can't remember right now, but. (laughs) How did you work anchovies into this show? I don't understand that. (laughs) (laughs) How did Diane Duane work anchovies into this show? I mean, she's great. I know. (laughs) Crazy. Uh, I, I like the book a lot, maybe not quite as much as you do. And I think I expressed that, I wanted to have a little more fun with the McCoy in command and Spock at his side. I wanted a little more of the bickering and, and kind of laugh. I want laugh out loud kind of moments from, from reading the two of those together. But it's very interesting to see these three species on this planet and Kirk interacting with that. At, I'm going to keep doing that. And um, the rocks, <laughs> the trees, the sandwich bags. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm sa- now it sounds like a waypoint comic. But <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but there's so many there's just a lot in this that you don't think you're going to get when you first pick up the book. And it's very Star Trek. So I would say that I would give it a a sandwich in a bag 
that has a lot of meat, lettuce, tomato, but I forgot to put some cheese. Oh, see, and and I I would love that sandwich. I don't like cheese, so <laughs> well, there you go. That's that, a great rating. That's why you like the book a little <laughs> better than I do. But it is still a great rating. I, I I love the book. It's it's definitely worth a read. I think we both really enjoyed this novel. I I think, like you say, maybe you not quite as much as I did, but definitely a highlight. I think in the Star Trek novel line, if any readers out there are fans of Dr. McCoy, and I definitely count myself one. When I was a kid, my favorite character was Spock. As an adult, my favorite character is McCoy, which is probably another reason I really love this novel. You should you should check it out. You know, it it's a bit of a typical fish-out-of-water story, but it's done really, really well and with some really cool science fiction concepts in them. I I think you will enjoy this novel if you like the character of McCoy at all. Sometimes when I read Star Trek novels now, I have a little fun with them in the fact that I might... Of course, you're picturing DeForest Kelly, but every once in a while, I would read a scene and do Carl Urban just to see how it would play out. And sometimes that was fun. Hmm. It would really work well. Uh, I would really, I would always want to go back and reread it just with Carl Urban in mind and see how that plays out because uh, he's so great playing McCoy. But and I also like the fact that I got this as a used book and I don't have that many Star Trek novels that are used books because some of them smell like cigarette smoke and this one didn't so (laughs) I was glad I was like oh is this one of the ones that smell oh no good this one's a good one so (laughs) this was not a stinky book for me but you know what Dan that's not the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM is stinky books (laughs) (laughs) it's been fun talking about it but here's other things we've been discussing here on the network previously on trek.fm to the journey so his his whittling skills are so advanced that he can whittle wood into leather into vegan leather yes he is now rumpelstiltskin (laughs) he is the rumpelstiltskin of the marquee warp five you think they start to like like each other and then it's more like a father daughter kind of relationship and then he basically becomes uh, 50 first dates and she falls in love with him. That's great. (laughs) That is true. The 602 Club. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Lee, that's inspired to have him in that role. It, It really is such a good bit of casting to have him there. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. The key thing with Jutrelli is all of these elements are exactly the same thing as the events in real life. You know, the Metron Cascade is the bomb. Rhinax is Nagasaki or Hiroshima. You know, the poisoning is analogous to radiation poisoning and all these different things. And the the parallels are enormously overt with Jutrell straight away. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you are an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app. You can get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. 
And if you have the time, please leave us a star rating and a written review. That really helps us show up in the searches when people are looking for Star Trek podcasts and specifically fans of the books. We want to make it easy for them to find us. But if you are not an Apple user, we've got you covered there as well. You can find our shows wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, any third-party app out there, you'll be able to find us. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And you can help us keep the shows coming to you each and every week by becoming a patron of the Patreon network. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, and you'll get all the details there. And we have all kinds of perks like early access to episodes and exclusive content, producer credits, so on and so forth. We have a special Patreon website called the Patreon Zone. So it really means a lot to us to have the money to produce, host, and distribute these shows because it does cost a lot of money. As a matter of fact, before I even got involved in Literary Treks as a co-host, I was a patron of Patreon, and I still am today. I'm still contributing money to keep this wonderful network up and going so we can listen to all of the Trek FM shows. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you have any thoughts on today's show, if you thought McCoy made a great captain, a terrible captain, or if you think that sandwich bags full of protoplasm make for some really weird aliens, we'd love to hear from you. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is on the Babel Conference, our listeners-only group on Facebook. To find that, just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That'll come straight to us. You can also find us on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com trekfm. And you can find us on our Goodreads group. We have a bookshelf there that shows all the books that we cover on Literary Treks. We show the ones that we previously read, the ones that we're currently reading, and the ones that are coming up so that you can participate in future shows by reading the book ahead of time before the episode comes out, which is really great. So if you, you have already known to read Doctor's Orders before this episode, and you could really get a lot more out of the conversation because of that. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group, and we'll let you right in. And as we were talking earlier about uh, Patreon, some of our patrons are associate producers of Literary Trek. So we'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shea-Matala for their support of the Trek FM network and, of course, being the associate producers of the show as well. So, Dan, when you're not leaning against a rock and all of a sudden it moves on you and you fall down because of that, where can people find you? I swear there was a rock just here. Now this, this is ridiculous. I, I'll, be, I'll be nursing my wounds and, and posting and complaining about it on Facebook. You can find me on facebook.com slash Productions. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S Productions. You can also find me on YouTube where I have a YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com slash Productions. As I mentioned earlier, I've got a website where I review Star Trek novels at treklit.blogspot.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats and on Instagram at Kurtrats47 and kicking around the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. 
I also want to point out that Glad and Ziploc are not sponsors of the show. <laughs> and Bruce, when you're not making sure that tree you just passed wasn't actually looking at you, where can we find you? I swear that tree's staring at me right now. There's a tree just looking at me. Okay, I gotta run. I, I can't take any more. So if you need to find me, go to Twitter and look for Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me there. And if you still need to look for me, you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And if you're still looking for me, you can find me in the Babel Conference on Facebook. Of course, talking about that thing that we all love, Star Trek. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.